Exodus 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hi-Roth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, and that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them in camp by the sea by Pi-ha-hiroth in front of Baal-zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you will only have to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the hosts of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the hosts of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night." Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen of all hosts of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. If y'all uh, do not know me, I'm John Crafts. I am uh, not a pastor here at Redeemer, but I am a pastor uh, worshiping at Redeemer with my family, and I'm the campus minister at Rhodes College, and I was excited uh, when Matt asked me uh, to be a part of this summer series of the greatest hits of the Bible, and, and I'm very excited to do uh, probably one of the most well-known stories, at least the, well, the most kind of... Uh, popular stories out there, been in movies, been in miniseries, uh, been, in, been in a lot of animated and live action movies, uh, and, and one that if you've been around the church at all, or even if you haven't, uh, you've probably know of the Exodus. Um, and so with that, let me pray, and we'll dive into this passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for uh, your gospel and your good news and forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray that as we read this story that some of us are very familiar with, um, that some of us might be newer to or at least have first time actually read it from the Bible, um, all, all 31 verses of it, Lord. I just thank you that uh, I pray that you would encourage us uh, this morning and, and show us um, the gospel through this story. I pray this in your name. Amen. So as I said, uh, this is a pretty well-known uh, story. It is truly one of the greatest hits. Uh, the uh, professor, Mike, Michael Williams, a seminary professor, um, in a quote, I put a quote from, from one of his books in the front of the bulletin, um, and he emphasizes its importance uh, that in some ways it is sort of like uh, the, the peak of the Old Testament, uh, that, that the Old Testament looks to it, and then after, after the Exodus, uh, Continually, um, the, the Old Testament writers, the prophets, they look back uh, to the, this Exodus event. Um, that that the Israelites look back towards the Exodus in the same way that Christians look back to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and and with that, I kind of want to ask the question: Okay, but why did this event that happened so long ago? How is it relevant? Why is it relevant to us today? What does it have to show us about God today? And before I dive into those three things, I just want to give a few little bit of context as we go back over the story. Uh, because coming into this story, the Israelites had just experienced 10 plagues visited upon Egypt. And all, and all these different 10 plagues um, were all sort of corresponded with different potentially Egyptian gods or sort of cultural touch points. So you have all these plagues that affect agriculture, that affect the Nile River, that affect uh, uh, health, that affect the family, that all these things that, that Egyptians would have worshipped um, would have been important. Uh, God has come in and delivered plagues to them. Uh, so with that, Pharaoh finally decides to free the Israelites from slavery, and in doing so, they're gifted many goods and materials. So in a sense, basically without lifting a finger, these Israelite slaves have now basically plundered the Egyptians. They haven't just been freed, but they've plundered them. And then they're led out uh, out of, the, of Egypt by this kind of pillar of cloud and then fire at night. And again, uh, Matt talked about last week, the burning bush, and this sort of seeing throughout the Old Testament that smoke and fire sort of symbolize God's presence with his people. And God leads them to this very strange place 
this place that's sort of surrounded on three sides uh, with the Red Sea, uh, desert wilderness, and mountains. And then just basically a straight pathway from Egypt to where they are. It's kind of almost a perfect spot for an army to attack. If we can kind of visualize, you know, you go down, if, if you were down, I guess, in Tomley Park or something next to the Mississippi River, so it had this big body of water on one side. You look the other side, and this maybe is like Egypt. There's a big pyramid uh, to one side, the Bass Pro Pyramid, uh, you know, and then to the other side, there's a bluff and, and some other things. You know, there's not a mountain. Uh, Memphis is, not a, is, not, is very flat. Uh, but there's sense of then looking up and seeing this, like, army of chariots, you know, coming down Poplar towards us and this feeling of, of being trapped, uh, of being in the worst place to flee or to even fight back in any way. And so while the, the plagues, uh, so while the plagues went after many gods at the time, we also see that this Exodus event now brings into place two more kind of big pillars of Egyptian uh, and ancient spirituality. First, the Pharaoh as leader of the then greatest empire of the known world, you know, would be considered a god. Uh, someone to be worshipped and feared that the king uh, of this great empire would be seen as divine. And you also have the sea here, uh, which is always feared. And we see this throughout the Old Testament and just kind of ancient culture, that the sea sort of always represents chaos and evil. And that, that the, the sea is sort of this dark place uh, to be feared. And the Israelites would see both Pharaoh and the sea as sort of rival powers to their God. So while this is a great story of rescue and redemption, it would also be read by the ancient readers as a great competition between ancient uh, powers, power of the sea, the divine king, and then this, this competition with the God of the Israelites, Yahweh. And we see in verse 4, 17 through 18, 31, God wanted not just Israel, but Egypt to know who he was. That, that all throughout this passage, you see the Lord, which uh, is kind of capitalized all four letters, which is basically showing that it's, you know, in the Hebrew it would be Yahweh, the personal name of God, that, that God wants not just Israel, but Egypt. And in a sense, when he's saying Egypt, he means the known world, because this would be the great empire, uh, that he, they want, he wants all to know that he is God, that he is this personal God to the Israelites. So there is a sort of a missional aspect to this as God revealing himself to the world. And so, so in that, God, through Moses, parts the Red Sea, and the text wants us to know that this is a supernatural event. This isn't some kind of natural occurrence. It cannot be explained that there are water, walls of water to the left of the right, and the ground, rather than being soggy or damp, is dry immediately once the water's been, you know, divided. And of course, it, it becomes soggy again then once the Egyptian chariots get clogged um, in the muddy uh, part, but, but for the Israelites, it is made dry. And, and so we also see patterns, you know, that we've seen throughout this series that Redeemer has done on these greatest hits. God working through wind and fire, his dividing and controlling water, uh, you know, in creation, in the fall, in Noah, in the burning bush, and now here. And Israel gets across, and Pharaoh's army is decimated when the waters come back together. The Lord has saved the Israelites from the Egyptian army after having freed them from slavery. And Genesis 15, which we've already read enough, um, but Genesis 15 records Miriam and Moses singing this great song, leading the people in song and feasting to celebrate their salvation. And that is the story of the Exodus. And with this context, there's three things I think we see this morning. First, 
The first thing we see is that God is greater, that God is greater. And when I was in college, uh, I played a lot of pickup basketball, and I went to college in Nashville and had this gym that I would go and play at, and oftentimes you'd have a lot of athletes, Nashville athletes, come through there um, in their off seasons, you know, and when they weren't playing either college sports or professional sports. And so we were playing pickup ball, and one, and one day in walks a couple of kind of um, professional basketball players, semi-pro players, one of them being Billy McCraffrey, who went to Duke and then played at Vanderbilt, uh, you know, and then was playing semi-pro ball. And then you had Ron Mercer walk in, who's, who's from Nashville, and who was an NBA player. This is aging me greatly, by the way. Uh, but, and so, and of course, being who I am, I'm immediately like, hey, I got, I got Ron. I got Ron Mercer. I got the NBA player. I want to guard him. Um, and I was playing point guard, and, and so we get out there, make a couple of passes, and of course, you know, it's, it's pick a ball, so nobody's taking it super seriously, except for me. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm wide open, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to shoot the three. I make it. Uh, come back down, uh, you know, come back down, still really not being guarded much, uh, shoot another three and make it. And of course, at that point, you know, I, I decide it's time to, to talk a little bit. And so, um, and, and I'm not very witty, but I basically look at uh, Ron Mercer and I tell him, hey, if you're going to win, you better guard me, NBA. I don't know why I said that, but. Uh, and so then I run back down uh, the court. A couple of lessons later, I get a steal. I'm going in for what I think is an easy layup. I'm already beginning to contemplate the next witty comment I'm about to make. And I just hear the loudest bang I've ever heard as my layup is blocked against the glass and I almost like all the way back to half court. And, uh, and then I turn around, it's Ron Mercer. I didn't even hear him coming. And then he tells me that I'm never going to touch the ball again. <laughs> and, and he was right. Uh, we played at 21. Uh, and I was the point guard, and I didn't touch the ball again. He, he did not let the ball get to me. He face guarded me. He, he did not let me do anything. Um, and, and at times, he even, like, on offense, he would have a fast break, and he would wait for me to get back on defense just so he could score on me. Uh, and, I, and I remember being done, and I'm, like, soaked in sweat, just having to try to touch the ball again um, to defy him. And he, like, was not even breathing hard, barely broke a sweat at all, and kind of laughing. And, and that kind of mismatch is what is going on here in the Exodus story. That this is what God is doing to Pharaoh here. That God wants everyone to know who is God and who is greater. That he's already done this with the plagues, but now he humiliates Pharaoh despite his powerful army and his powerful chariots, which would be the best technological weapon of the time. That he is God and that Pharaoh is not. That he's the creator, and Pharaoh is just another human created in the image of God. This theme will occur again and again throughout the Old Testament, that God is greater than any emperors, than any empires, and than any false gods. We'll see this throughout the Old Testament. And I can see some of us thinking in here, you know, some of us thinking, well, you know, we're modern people. You know, we don't worship leaders in the same way like they worshiped the Pharaoh, but I would say, actually, let's take a step back. Let's look at our, you know, political and cultural climate. Look at our celebrity culture. Look at the rise of nationalism. Look at how powerful cult of personalities uh, can be in our culture. You know, not just in politics, but in business and scholarship and the arts, you know, and especially in the church and how powerful they can be, a great artist or a great leader. And we can often put mere humans in the place of God. So how do we know that we're doing this? Well, you know, ask yourself, do you go into despair with any sort of political loss? 
You know, I'm not saying kind of natural sadness or mourning, but sort of a despairing hopelessness when your side does not win a political battle? Do you over-celebrate a victory or begin to believe, you know, a mere human or a group of humans are going to solve all the world's problems? Do you tend to have an us-versus-them mentality about many areas in your life? Do you expect perfection from certain people for them to be almost godlike in how they care about you, and it leads to anger when they fail? The the theologian Ed Welch wrote a book with a great title, When People Are Big and God is Small. And I think we really struggle with the fear of man, that we often make people big and God small in our lives. The Israelites feared Pharaoh and his army, but we fear man in so many ways. We desire their approval. We desire the approval of our employer. We desire the approval of our employees. You know, we desire the approval of our families. You know, many of us would scoff at this sort of ancient Pharaoh worship, and yet our entire lives might be wrapped up in getting the approval of a parent or a spouse or a mentor. That even if someone in your life's passed away, your need to still earn their approval controls your life even to this day. Or maybe you still deal, sort of we looked at a few weeks ago, um, in the Babel way, that desire to be great, the desire to be God, you know, to be the Pharaoh, to, rec- to at least receive worship and adulation. You want to be the Pharaoh of your vocation, of your profession, in grades, in sports, the Pharaoh in beauty or social status and cultural knowledge and being an insider, you know, a Pharaoh of morality and how good you are or in theology, how much you know. You want to be the greatest mom or the greatest dad or have the greatest family or be the greatest child among your siblings or the favorite one. You know, where can I be the Pharaoh? But we forget that God is greater and that, again, everyone is created in the image of God, equal in God's eyes. And this story of Exodus shows that God is greater than Pharaoh, than all other humans. It's like he's toying with him. It's not even close. Like in the story of Babel, God comes down to see what the children are doing. Uh, and, And the people of Babel wanted to be great. And Pharaoh, of course, is the ultimate Babelite. He was the king of the biggest empire. He was God in his eyes. And yet, it's a total mismatch. So while God is greater, that's one. Secondly, this passage shows us that God has a plan, that he's at work. There's a method to what we often perceive as madness. We see here God leading the Israelites into what seems like a trap, basically the least strategic position for fighting a powerful army or fleeing from it. But God has a strategy here. It's actually a trap for Pharaoh. He's at work. You know, and he hardens Pharaoh's Hearts. And again, I'm not going to get into the whole God's sovereignty, human responsibility thing this morning. I will outsource that uh, to, uh, to Matt, Ben, and Austin, anybody else at Redeemer. But, uh, you know, talk to you about that later. But God, Pharaoh, but God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He seemingly traps Israel, but again, is setting a trap for Pharaoh. He has his pillar of, of cloud, as well as the angel of the Lord, impede and fight the army on Israel's behalf. He commands Moses to use his staff. He parts the Red Sea. He commands Israel to cross over, and then he destroys Pharaoh's army. God is doing it all. God is the actor. He is the mover. He is at work. And God wants not just Israel again, but he wants Egypt to know that I am the Lord. 
his name, Yahweh, using that personal name that Matt talked about last week. Not just that he's this greater God, but that he is this personal God who has a relationship with his people, who has come to redeem his people, who is slow to anger and compassionate and merciful and just, and he will continue his promises to his people despite their own sinfulness and flaws and imperfections, that he wants the world to know who he is as this gracious and loving but powerful God. But he also demonstrates his big overarching plan of redemption here. What is the gospel pattern that he has started? Because we see here that he delivers his people from oppression and brings them into divine blessing. You know, here in this story, that is safety from harm. That is freedom from slavery and eventually a promised land flowing with milk and honey. And we've already seen this pattern of the gospel, this good news, play out in other passages throughout this series. We've already seen deliverance from water um, in, in the story of Noah and in the creation story, God dividing the waters from the land. Now here is this supernatural display for his people as well as his enemies. You know, this display will be so huge that later on, Rahab is going to portray her own people in Jericho because she wants to be on the right side of history and to be with this kind of God. God is announcing that he is coming to redeem the world through his people. We talked about Babel in Genesis 11, but in Genesis 12, God shows an alternative to Babel where he will make his people great so that they will be a blessing to the nations. So we see here a battle between Pharaoh and Egypt representing, um, between Pharaoh and Egypt representing kind of Babel way and Yahweh and Israel representing his kingdom in the gospel way. That God is going to deliver and redeem his people to a blessed life so that they will begin to be a blessing and help further that God will use to redeem his world. That God saves and redeems his people and they respond in worship as they become part of his redemptive plan. And we talk about this today, um, today as the kingdom of God and seeking after God's kingdom to bring redemption to the world as we have been redeemed, to bring justice and freedom as we have been delivered from our oppression. And so before we move to the last point, just a few applications. First being, we do not always know the bigger story. That God may give us glimpses, but until we are with him in heaven um, or until he returns, we will not always see the big picture. I always tell my students at Rhodes that part of the new heavens and new earth I look forward to the most is when God is going to reveal to them all the way God has used them. That when God's going to reveal how much he has used them in others' lives and in my life, that will be revealed to how we were part of God's plan, that our lives are not wasted, that, we, that what we do and who we are has eternal significance every day, that we're part of God's bigger plan in the mundane and in the big, whether we think it or not, God is working through us. You think about Moses. For 30, 40 years, he was this Jewish man growing up in an Egyptian court. He probably never felt at home with his Egyptian family or with the Jewish people. And he learned all this stuff about Egyptian culture and being in elite circles, but he also grew more and more frustrated by the oppression of his people. Then in anger, he murders someone and has to flee the city, and he spends the next 40 years as a royal farmer shepherd living in the wilderness, probably going back and forth between being regretful of his, his lot, like I've just been dealt a bad hand, um, or being regretful of all the choices he made in his life 
not fighting oppression enough, murdering somebody in anger, all these things that's going on. And then at the age of 80, God shows up in a burning bush to say, I need you to deliver my people from oppression in the promised land and to be my mouthpiece to Pharaoh. Basically, Moses, I need somebody who understands the Egyptian court, but who's Jewish and understands the oppression of Israel, but someone who also knows how to survive with a family in the wilderness for 40 years. At 80, Moses realized what God's plan was for him in life. And I can say that God has a plan for you, for each one of you to hear this morning, and you are a vital part of it. And you might not get as easy and huge of a glimpse of that plan as Moses did, but again, he had to wait 80 years. So we might have to wait to see the glimpses of what God is doing in our lives and through us. I also can pretty confidently say that I was born uh, with lots of privileges in this life and that I'm the wrong person to get up here and talk about oppression from any sort of personal experience. However, I can say that this story and the pattern of redemption shows that God promises to ultimately deliver us from oppression and to punish those who are unjust. It is hard to know why God often allows, uh, seems to allow such evil to occur, but I know he promises in Romans 8 that all things work together for good, the good of God's kingdom and the good of his people. He does say that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness, that those who are persecuted for justice' sake or for his own sake are also blessed. And he calls upon his people to be just, to fight for justice, and to bring his kingdom of heaven to earth, something we prayed just a few minutes ago. So it's no surprise, and I have that in your bulletins for you all to read uh, when you get a chance, that, that Martin Luther King Jr. used this Exodus narrative heavily in his civil rights speeches because of the story and the pattern uh, of the gospel. And then one last application before we move to the final point. Many of us look at our, la- our lives right now and we see chaos. We see no meta-narrative or big picture. Uh, we we see, feel like we have no direction. We don't know what God is doing. You know, we're, we're right there with Israel saying, God, what are you doing? I see an army. Like, it was better than we were, when we were slaves. Are you just bringing us out in the wilderness because there wasn't enough land for graves in Egypt? You know, and, and you can be thinking, you know, being a Christian isn't any better than just being sort of a normal good person. I need to stop believing in these kind of fairy tales and, and, just be tr- and just trust myself. You know, for some of you, your complaint may be a situation you're in. It might be the loneliness. It might be the rejection you've recently experienced. It might be the evil or injustice you feel at your work or your schools. It might be what God uh, says will lead you to happiness. You know, his law that you, you, you struggle with, that his words about how we tr- handle the truth seems naive. How we turn the other cheek or love our enemies seems strange. You know, what we should or should not do with our money, what we should or should not do with our bodies, asking us to say no to some things that seem pretty great and that we just know will make us happy and not harm anybody, asking us to say yes to some things that are risky, that seem to only ensure suffering and hurt that seem to diminish our happiness greatly. You know, what is God doing? You know, we ask all the time, why is this in the Bible? And yet we have to remember that God is greater and that God has a plan. 
And that sometimes following God will feel like walking into a sure trap against an army and then walking through the midst of a roaring sea. Basically, it will seem kind of crazy following God. But we can trust God because he is greater, because he has a plan, and then finally, because he loves us and is good, because God loves us. Because this passage also shows that God loves his people, that he is with his people, that he is for his people, and that he loves his people. God delivers his people because he loves them, because he chose them, because he made promises to them, because they are his beloved children. And so are you. The God of the universe pursues us, redeems us. He eternally approves of us in Christ. The Israelites complain to God, and God says, I'm going to save you. And not only have you safe tomorrow from Egyptians, but I'm going to have you singing and feasting and drinking and celebrating. God says, I want you to be happy and full of joy even more than you do. You know, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big Twitter person. Um, I'm on Twitter way too much. I love Twitter. In fact, my little, little screen uh, count came in a couple hours ago. It was very embarrassing, as it always is every week, and uh, my screen time. And, you know, I'm nervous about threads taking over. But one thing that's funny about, like, looking at all these different social media sites and just all the apps out there, so everyone's talking about algorithms and AI. And, and one thing the social media apps, and even apps like, you know, Netflix have shown, is that the algorithm that computers actually know us better than we know ourselves. That pe people ultimately might complain about Instagram changing the timeline and things like that, but ultimately that their computer and their algorithm knows us uh, knows what we like more than we would if we chose it. That we overwhelmingly choose the for you timelines run by an algorithm to what, you're, to what we're actually following. In other words, even when we would, could choose what would make us the most happy all the time, we would struggle to do it because we don't really even know what would make us happy. We're blinded to even our own preferences. That basically Spotify knows our music taste better than we do. And yet, we also have the God of the universe who has a plan, who desires our happiness and the happiness of the world, who loves the world, and he tells us what a good life is, what a blessed life is, what is good and what is evil. And yet our response over and over again is, yeah, I'm not sure if you know what you're talking about, God. I don't know. Did you really mean that? I don't know, God. You may be mistaken here with what is going to actually bring happiness to the world. And of course, God doesn't just tell us to trust him. He doesn't ask for some blind faith. He redeems us and loves us first. It's why the Ten Commandments, a few chapters later, begin with God reminding them, I love you. I freed you from slavery. I've loved you and your people for generations. So by the way, here is how you go out and live a blessed life. And of course, we have even more patterns and stories of God's faithfulness throughout Scripture than these Israelites did coming out of the Exodus. And of course, we ultimately see this in Christ, in Jesus. Because Jesus, unlike Pharaoh, is actually God and worthy of worship. That he loves all people and oppresses no one. He seeks people on the margins and loves his neighbor rather than grasp for power or greatness. As Philippians says, Jesus, then actually God, did not consider equality or status with God something to be grasped. He's like the anti-Babel. That Jesus showed that God is for us and with us by coming down and dwelling with us because he so loved the world. He lived for us. He died for us. 
and that Jesus did not demean to be commended like Moses to do anything. Um, he just could command the wind and the waves and they would obey him. He calmed a storm with his words. Jesus can control the waters because he's God. That Jesus is the better Moses because he brought the judgment of the sea upon himself on the cross for us. That he delivered his own people from the oppression of their sins and from death shown by his resurrection. He has conquered our greatest enemy and oppressor, death and sin. This is our ultimate and eternal redemption. In this, we no longer need the approval of man because we have the eternal certain approval of God, that we are his beloved children forever, that we can now actually begin to love people instead of merely seeking approval everywhere we go. That in verse 8, it says that the people of Israel were going out defiantly. They were basically saying that they were leaving Egypt after having been freed boldly, confidently, without having to even look back, in a sense, after being freed. You know, Paul in Colossians talks about, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. And we're called to continue to walk in that grace, the grace that the Israelites felt as they had doing nothing, had been delivered from slavery and been given wealth by the Egyptians. This is the way we are to walk in our Christian life as those who've received unbelievable and amazing grace, that confidence as a beloved child of God with an internal inheritance. We're to walk in that. And of course, that's not self-righteousness, but a confidence in God's love for us his children. Whereas Israel saw the armies and quickly lost that confidence, we often, in the same way amidst the chaos and brokenness of this life, forget what God has done for us in our redemption. But we have this community of the church and the word to remind us. And part of coming to worship on Sundays and fellowship with each other throughout the week is corporately reminding ourselves of these truths. That despite the apparent chaos and evil and frustrations of the world, we are a redeemed and loved people. And we are part of a bigger story that's greater than any evil. We often need the unearned and gracious love of his people to fill that need for approval we have, to be the, the, the hands and feet of Jesus. And to be reminded that God is greater, that he has a plan, and that he loves us, is for us, and with us. And we need to remind the world of this too. Because again, the Lord wants Egypt to know him, to know his personal name. And so we're now temples of the Holy Spirit. We're ambassadors of the gospel to the world. And we must bring this kingdom of people through word, through deed, just daily doing, being faithful and loving others. That we can be a church that God uses to deliver people from darkness, whatever that looks like, from oppression to a promised land, to safety throughout Memphis and the world. We're simply called by faith to believe that God is greater, that he has a plan to redeem us and this world, and that he loves us and has saved us. And of course, this is not easy, and it's why we need this story of the Exodus and the gospel story to, to continue to be told over and over again. And, and as you all know, this has been a very hard time for our city and our state even when it comes to tragedies. I, 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 just, I feel like this last year has been the most tragic year of my, you know, over 40 years life. And the evil and the brokenness of the world has hit very personally to a lot of people, people very close to me, you know, to maybe to some of our neighbors and people many of us love. You know, and for some, I don't know how many of them have held on to such faith 
But again, again, they point to this pattern of redemption. And, and I look at verse 13, the way Moses talks to Israel about the Egyptians when the people are complaining and they are fearful. And he says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. And that only have to be silent means you just have to trust, be patient and trust. And of course, the apostles of the New Testament come again and again to us with this gospel and this message of Jesus, the greater Moses, who comes and says to you the same thing about evil, about death, about oppression, about sickness, and about tears, that they are all short-lived in my eternal kingdom. In my kingdom, all things sad and bitter will seem as nothing as I reconcile all things and bring peace. And that when I return, you will never see such evil and sad things again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you are greater. And I thank you that you have a plan for each one of us, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage us this morning, wherever we are, um, that you love us and that people love us and that you would continue to make us a church um, that rests in that love and reminds others of it. I pray this in your name. Amen.